This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Today we remember Ed Broadbent, who died on January 11th, and we honor his legacy. Ed was on this show several times over the years and was a very dear friend. He was the very popular leader of the NDP, or the New Democratic Party in Canada, between 1975 and 1989, and he was first elected to the House of Commons in 1968 from Oshawa, Ontario. We even had him on during the earlier auto strikes to talk about what it was like to grow up in Oshawa and be part of a union family or to have members of his family. I think an uncle who was almost 104 or something that had been an auto worker. And Ed was always at the forefront of the parliamentary struggle for democratic socialism in practice. He was also vice president of the Socialist International and the founding president of Rights and Democracy that promoted human rights around the world. And in 2011, he founded the think tank, the Broadbent Institute. We're going to talk about all of that. But Ed was also known for his honesty and his decency, and he was often called the best prime minister Canada never had. He was an expert in theory and practice of policymaking. And as his partner, Francis Abel, said, Ed was like a meteor in Canada. He was indeed a meteor a beacon for social justice, and an all-around stand-up guy, warm and compassionate, brilliant, and fun to be around. We were going to interview Ed this month on this book that we're going to talk about today, Seeking Social Democracy. Today, we'll interview his co-authors. The world has lost a fierce voice for working people, a champion for justice and democracy, and we've lost a close friend. In the postscript to the book, Ed leaves us with an enduring vision and his hopes for what is to be done to build the good society for today and the future. And he says, to be humane, societies must be democratic. And to be democratic, every person must be afforded the economic and social rights necessary for their individual flourishing. On their own, political and civil freedoms are insufficient in the realization of that goal. And he continues to say that political democracy is not enough. In the 21st century, the rebuilding of social democracy must be our task. Social democracy alone offers the foundation upon which the lives of people everywhere can be made dignified, just, and exciting. We're talking today to Francis Abel, Jonathan Sass, and Luke Savage when our program returns in just a moment. I'm, um, I'm deeply honored to be with you today. To honor our colleague, our leader, and our friend, Ed Broadbent. Ed Broadbent was a scholar. He was a highly successful and beloved politician in the best sense, which is not an easy thing to pull off. <laughs> and he was a really, really nice guy. He was an intellectual with a coffee table loaded with books, which he seemed to be reading ten at a time. He loved learning. And what he learned led him to a set of clear, powerful principles that animated him all his life and in everything he did. He passionately believed in economic and social equality. And he passionately believed in democracy and human rights. 
Ed not only believed in those principles, he also knew that every generation must fight for them, which is exactly what he did during a brilliant 14-year run as leader of Canada's New Democrats. And welcome back to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and we are indeed fortunate today to have the co-authors of the book Seeking Social Democracy, Seven Decades in the Fight for Equality, that was published in October of 2023. The book is uniquely structured, and we'll get the co-authors to talk about that. It's part memoir, part political history, and part political manifesto, and offers a wide-ranging discussion and exploration of the theory and practice of social democracy, mainly in Canada, but also internationally. Ed Broadbent didn't want to just write a memoir. He thought most political memoirs ended up being self-serving and self-justifying. He wanted to discuss the ideas and action he tried to exemplify and, importantly, win while he was leader of the NDP in Parliament and afterwards with the Broadbent Institute. In other words, ideas and action playing out in real history. And to do this, he engaged in dialogue with his three collaborators who were with us. Carleton University professors Francis Abel, policy analyst Jonathan Sass, and Jacobin editor and writer, columnist Luke Savage, each from different generations who ask Ed substantive questions that lead to a deeper discussion on the theory and practice of social democracy from Ed's perspective as a both a theorist and practitioner. That is, questions that open into intricate inquiries about his ideas and leadership and addressing moments that he lived through in Canada's history. And at the book launch in October in Toronto, Ed said that he wanted the book to show the history of social democracy from 1968 on vividly and to show the relevance of ideas of social democracy today. And for Ed, the main ideas of democratic socialism, as it is mostly called here in the U.S., thanks to Bernie, are a preoccupation with inequality and what he calls decommodification or taking certain things out of the market like health, education, social welfare, housing, and making them the rights of citizenship. And he described this as unorthodox in his beginning note. I just want to say that the result is pretty remarkable, and it shows Ed to be an exceptional leader and a political theorist at the same time. And it really also, I think, gives us a window into the kind of dilemmas that all of us who are on the left face once we're in positions in power. And that's, I think, one of the biggest lessons that you get from reading this book. And for American listeners, we get a fascinating window into what that looks like because we don't often get people who are democratic socialists close enough to power to make a difference. So with all of that, let me welcome you. And I'm sorry I took so long on the intro. Francis Abel is a distinguished research professor at Carleton University, a research fellow at the Broadbent Institute. She's been widely recognized for her scholarly and practical work on Indigenous-Canada relations, including getting the Order of Canada, and also including the Rebuilding First Nations Governance Project, and she was also Ed's partner in his final years. Jonathan Sass is a policy analyst who has worked in senior policy and political roles in government, think tanks, and the labor movement. He's an honorary witness to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and he writes in all of the right places. And Luke Savage is a writer, a journalist, an essayist. He's also a podcaster, and his work appears again in the right places, The Atlantic, The Guardian, 
Washington Post, and he's a columnist at Jacobin. His first book, The Dead Center, was published in 2022. So welcome, all of you. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Susie. Some some of my writing is published in the wrong places as well. <laughs> that should be a badge of honor, I guess. Um, <laughs> I do want to jump into what is meant by social democracy, but I thought we would begin for the audience with a personal note from each of you about how you met Ed, what Marquis left on your lives and how you would assess it. And maybe we should start with Jonathan. Ah, well, thank you. In the U.S., you don't have as strong of a true electoral left. But here, I mean, I grew up, Ed's name was known in my house. And while he left the leadership when I was only five years old, he still had a profile. And I would say growing up, I knew him in a way that sort of reflects what you're seeing now in a, a massive outpouring of admiration across the country and across the political spectrum, which was a statesman-like person of integrity, trustworthy, but I didn't know much about his politics. And like many of my generation who grew so disillusioned in the neoliberal age, having known nothing else, discovering when, while I was in university, a tradition of left political economy in Canada, and especially the New Democratic Party, and then being confronted by Ed's thoughts, which not only was steeped in that tradition, but also that he was rejected the neoliberal turn and was still rejecting it as we were going through. You know, I sort of came to him that way, and then that would lead me eventually to being a young, earnest policy director when his institute was founded. and. The rest is history, as they say. Thank you. Luke Savage, let's move to you. Sure. Well, thanks again for that very warm and kind introduction. It's wonderful to be with you. I worked at the Broadman Institute like Jonathan, but I met Ed slightly before that. Ed had wanted to write a book for some time, a long time before all of us got together to work on it with him. So I guess it's over 10 years ago now that he was in discussion with a mutual friend of ours, a journalist named Michael Valpe. And I actually dug up the email that I think Michael Valpe must have shared with me a long time ago. It's got Ed's handwritten notes on it. He did most things by hand, which was both charming and uh, could sometimes pose logistical challenges working on a big <laughs> manuscript. But his notes are very interesting. And I, I think I mentioned a few of them in the introduction I wrote to the book. They're things like, Local versus globalization, uh, common space versus markets, personality and history, political ideas and their limits, goes on and on. And as you said yourself, Ed was not interested in writing a, a traditional political memoir. I think those can be interesting. I looked at quite a few throughout our work on the book, usually mining for anecdotes. What did Brian Mulroney think about the 1988 federal election debate or something like that? And, you know, some of them are very well done. They're often kind of uh, very detailed chronicles of what happened. But Ed was fundamentally an ideas man. And that is how I first came to know him as well. When I was an undergraduate at the University of Toronto, I suppose some 50 or 60 years after he was, I found a book of his that's barely remembered today. It was an 80 page or so book, sort of novella length called The Liberal Ripoff, Trudeauism versus the Politics of Equality. It was published when Ed had just been in the House of Commons for a few years. 
I'm not sure I ever successfully conveyed to Ed in all my discussions with him how much discovering this book really meant to me. On intellectual level, it introduced me to a lot of ideas about socialism that I had not encountered before, things that went beyond the sort of status social democracy that I knew about at the time. But there was something about the style that really stuck out for me. It was a cerebral book, as you might expect from somebody who had a background in political theory. You know, Ed was a political science professor at York University for a few years before he entered politics. You know, it was somehow incredibly practically minded as well. And those two things didn't really seem to be intention. Ed was somehow able to dwell in this realm of abstract theory without being cloistered in it or, or captured by it. He was always determined to use it in the service of a kind of wider project. And so the book is full of very practically minded thinking as well. It's talking about how should socialists think about inflation? How should they think about scientific research in a, a modern economy? How should they think about consumerism and that kind of thing? And it did all that while also making copious references to Karl Marx and John Stuart Mill, which was very much Ed's style. So uh, lots more to say, but uh, perhaps I'll leave things there uh, for now. Thank you. And we'll definitely say that. And Francis, Abel, that leaves you with your, I'm sure, abundant remembrances of knowing Ed, knowing his work, working with him, living with him. Thank you very much. Yeah. Well, of course, I grew up in Alberta in definitely the most conservative province in Canada, just north of Montana. Where, where I grew up, just, yeah. just exactly south of you. That's right. Yeah. And there, there weren't many socialists and there were no socialists in my area, but I grew up a socialist. And so Ed and his predecessors as leaders of the NDP were very important people in my growing up years because they spoke a language I understood and they stood up for things that seemed to me really important. From the beginning of his time in politics, Ed was interested in, in looking after the interests of the people who were most in need of support and solidarity. And he did that in lots of different ways. His interest in industrial democracy was all about improving the purchase that ordinary people would have over uh, the companies that they worked for and the economy as a whole. He was interested in racial justice before many people in Canada were, both in the United States and in Canada. And he came to public life in 1968, which was a year of promise in the United States and also in Canada. It seemed like anything was possible, that we were on the verge of breaking through to a new and better way of living. And it seemed to Ed's election and then being able to see him operate in politics, it seemed to me that he was part of that renewal of our country's politics. Uh, things didn't work out that way. We all had the 70s and then we had the 80s and then we had neoliberalism. But Ed never changed. He got a better haircut as he got older. And I think he refined his speech making styles, but his ideas did not change. And he grew better and better at explaining them. He made contact with people all over the country. And as I knew Ed later, he got together with my oldest friend, Ed Ellen Wood, who who died in 2016. That's how I met Ed personally, before he was a person of public interest. From that moment on, I knew that I'd met someone very special, that someone who had enormous empathy for other people. Going about with Ed on the streets of, in, in Canada and even in Europe, you were bound to meet somebody that knew him. 
And people would come up and this, we're talking now 20 years after he left public life, people would come up and shake his hand and thank him for his service. Usually they would remember an anecdote, having met him in 1967 somewhere, and they felt still that he was their friend. They felt comfortable that they could come up and talk to him. And I say he lived in Canada like it was his village. He knew people everywhere. And that was a wonderful thing to see. He also accomplished a lot. There is the character of the man is worth celebrating. It is something we should celebrate. But his accomplishments were formidable. That's just perfect. Thank you. And I, I just wanted to add to that because, of course, Ellen was our friend, mine and my partner, Robert Brenner, who worked with her very, very closely. And we met Ed through Ellen. We had a blast from day one. His humor was great. You know? mm. and, and then we came to Ottawa one very cold winter. Ed walked us over to the Houses of Parliament and hardly anybody was there because it was so cold. And some old guy who was like a caretaker came out, ran up, hugged Ed. Oh, I'm so glad to see you back. Are you going to run again? And it was just, I got a tiny flavor of what you, Francis, must have experienced on a practically daily basis and not just in Canada because Ed was known the world over. It was on September the 28th, 1968, that Ed Broadbent rose to speak in the House of Commons for the very first time. Uh, by his own account, it was a pretty grand affair. I must say, Mr. Speaker, I am particularly pleased to see such a crowded house at 5.15 p.m. on a Friday afternoon. Ed remarked to the maybe five or so colleagues in attendance. <laughs> Who would have thought that so many thousands would have turned out? A son of Oshawa, a city whose storied struggles against the greed of the automotive industry were a turning point for industrial unionism in North America, and had been elected to represent his hometown by a margin of just 15 votes after his stint as a professor of political theory at York University. And the speech he gave that day, at least to the five or so who may have heard it, um, was in every way completely and utterly him. For one thing, it began with a joke, delivered in his trademark deadpan. More seriously, it somehow swung with seemingly no effort from references to John Stuart Mill and Athenian democracy to celebrations of the gains won by ordinary people throughout the first part of the long 20th century. Pensions, the universal franchise, public health insurance, the revolutionary innovations of the welfare state. And in the speech, Ed made clear that while he regarded all of these things as important and tangible victories on the road to equality, they were also insufficient in realizing the task of real democracy and human freedom as he saw them. He wanted workers to have a greater say not just at the bargaining table but in the running of their enterprises. He argued that the kind of austere democracy that leaves entrenched the hierarchies of our society is not fully a democracy. And he concluded by calling for a seismic shift of power from the few at the top to the many below. As Jonathan has just so eloquently reminded us, Ed Broadbent was a democratic socialist in the truest and deepest sense. He was a populist intellectual for whom the world of the mind represented in the likes of history, philosophy, and economics was inexorably linked to a greater modern struggle for equality and for our collective freedom. 
It was to that struggle above all else to which he ultimately devoted his life. Thank you. So let's get into some of the substance of the book. And there are certain areas that I think we should address, but I wanted to maybe just start and ask, we've talked a little bit about Ed's commitment to social democracy and how he saw the theory of social democracy and what he spent his life fighting for in action. I think what makes Ed different from what I often probably disparage and called resolution passing uh, social Democrats who were just happy with getting a resolution passed. But Ed was not just happy with doing that. And so he was an example of doing something far more. And I just wanted to say, as someone who comes from the further left, that you know, we always like to say social democracy isn't enough, but boy, it would be nice if we had some, <laughs> especially saying that in the U.S. And so Ed, in my view, had this steadfast, not just a belief, a conviction that everything that he was fighting for was realizable. And I kind of want to get into your ideas about what he meant in theory and how he saw the practices sort of transformative and doable. Can I hop in on that? Actually, there's something very specific that comes to mind. Among my favorite treasures that we were just invariably unearthing amazing clips and and documents, Uh, Francis found all kinds of incredible stuff at Library and Archives Canada throughout work on the book. Something I found was a clip of Ed during an early meeting of this kind of radical uh, group called The Waffle. The Waffle was kind of Canada's version of the new left. It was, you know, animated by many of the things that were in the air in the 1960s, which in Canada meant very strong moral opposition to things like the Vietnam War. In the Canadian context of leftism had a very kind of uh, nationalist undertone, and the waffle was one of the major expressions of that. And there was the Waffle Manifesto. Ed wrote the section on industrial democracy in that. And I had no idea there were footage of these meetings, but there's a clip of all of them discussing a resolution that they're going to bring to the NDP convention, I believe, in 1969. So this was shortly after Ed entered Parliament. It's very interesting to hear the discussion because the people in the room really do run the gamut from practically minded people who are trying to advance a program to people who really just want to get the most kind of maximalist language into the document, regardless of whether it's going to work or not. Ed's intervention in this little scene is that they're they're having some discussion about nationalization of the key industries. And Ed raises, I think it's a pretty good point, what the hell are the key industries? Uh, I'm not an economist. I don't know. We had a seminar recently where we debated this and I still don't know the answer. So why don't we put in some more qualified language and say, we're going to do some work and we're going to you know, come back. Let's, let, let's qualify the resolution. Let's not bring a plan for nationalization of the entire Canadian economy <laughs> until we can explain to people how exactly we're going to do that. And I think that is so wonderfully illustrative of Ed's character and his approach to politics. Here he was in his you know, most intellectually radical and politically radical period. And yet the impulse that you see coming through in that moment is still, we shouldn't be bringing this to our comrades in the NDP or to the Canadian people until we can actually explain, if we're going to nationalize the major banks, let's explain how we're then planning to run them and that sort of thing. And I think uh, that's a wonderful illustration of the way, the way Ed uh, always tended to approach even these big radical questions. Jonathan, you want to jump in? You know, I've been thinking 
just a lot about and we get into it, but maybe not directly. I mean, I've, I've always felt that part of and politics or the formation of them, an outgrowth of kind of being on the left is that, like, look, they, they never won, right? Oh. He, and so he didn't have the luxury of, not even luxury, I mean, he, he took seriously the other political traditions that were vying for votes and beating him. I think, you know, that's clear. But so much comes out of his, you know, he calls it thinking my way to social democracy, that his socialism was very informed by a great theorist who was his thesis supervisor, C.B. McPherson. And he had a real preoccupation with individual rights not being sacrificed and understanding, you know, his focus on joy and individual flourishing, which he felt could only come through a socialist project, but which mattered, right? Like your civil and political rights still mattered. They just weren't enough. And I think that engendered a kind of practicality because maximalism didn't work necessarily. And it was just so earnest. You know, I just re- remembered this as Luke was speaking, but Ed once told me when I was working in politics, and I was working in indigenous relations in a Western province of Canada, very difficult rights violations. And he had just heard a radio interview of a federal minister. Her name was Jane Philpott, who had taken the public service to task over the lack of access to clean water in First Nations communities and huge rise in suicides in a lot of remote communities. And, you know, Ed was interested in those things getting done, that it was a liberal minister. And, you know, you see a lot in a lot of politicians who've been leaders, there, there isn't that kind of you can openness to drop the partisanship. But for him, getting the water to those communities was what mattered. And he called me to ask, what are you hearing from First Nations leaders? Like, is he for real? And it seems like she's taken... The, the guardians of the status quo, I would call them, within government to pass. There's, there's so much said on both practical sides. One of the things that was not that visible in Ed's character was that he was really very shrewd about what people could do, how he could get people to do things. In Canada, we have this third party that's always had a purchase on the federal legislature and sometimes runs provincial governments. Today in Manitoba and British Columbia, we have New Democratic Party. We have socialist governments running the provinces. But in all of Ed's time in federal politics, he was was doing the work of a political leader, maintaining the confidence of the caucus in a parliamentary system. You have to do that. And working across party lines, as Jonathan says, to get stuff done. And even though he was a very cerebral guy, he excelled at being able to work with other people to get worthwhile things done. And I think that's quite an unusual quality. It was wonderful to watch it in action. He never stopped doing that. He was still doing it in the last year of his life, trying to make things work, go in the right direction, and never changing his own politics, but always looking for the most practical way to get a progressive change institutionalized. 
This is great. And I want to just let the listeners know that we're talking to the three co-authors of the book, Seeking Social Democracy, Seven Decades in the Fight for Equality, but also at the same time remembering Ed Broadbent, who died on January 11th. And there's three areas I kind of want to get us to move into and one that are very pertinent to Ed's thought and to his practice. And one is industrial democracy. Another is this whole constitutional debate and the repatriation process. And the third is Ed's internationalism. And I think just to get it through, maybe we can start with you, Luke, on this, because industrial democracy or workplace democracy here in California, we had years ago, like in the 80s, Tom Hayden's campaign for economic democracy. Tom Hayden was in the state legislature. Ed, it would be, I guess, the equivalent of, you know, Mitch McConnell in the Senate. <laughs> Somebody that's so close and so important uh, in his time in power. And yet he was putting forward this idea that most of us would have thought is great to struggle for because it would expand in the direction we want to go, but not realizable under capitalism. So, I think this is a good place, Luke, for you to talk about that project and what it means for Ed to have been so committed to it. Sure. Well, yeah, I alluded to this off the top. This is one of the things that I discovered in the liberal ripoff, and I really was not super well versed in, you know, this particular strand of socialist thought. And it was a major theme for Ed during his earliest years in parliament in particular. He wrote a lot about it. He gave a lot of speeches about it. Uh, he agitated for it, you know, within the party and within the trade union movement as well. And I'm not exactly sure where he came across the idea. I mean, when one of us put the question to Ed, I think this is in the book, he said kind of self-deprecatingly in the way that he did. Well, I sort of just came up with it in my own little head. And I do think all of us have read at least part of his PhD thesis, which was a sort of friendly Marxist critique of John Stuart Mill. That's how I'd characterize it. And, you know, basically made the case that to to really realize Mill's ideal of human freedom, you know, you have to go beyond the system that he is proposing. And so, you know, I think Ed came into politics with a particular idea of what human equality meant and called it the political theory of cooperative individualism, which was a play on his supervisor, C.B. McPherson's famous book, which was a critique of liberal capitalism, which was called the political theory of possessive individualism. Ed had these abstract ideas, but as I've said already, he was very wedded to the practical as well. And in the book, he talks about a case, I talked about this in the liberal ripoff as well, a case of a company I believe they made glass in Oshawa. You know, it had this plant, I believe, for several decades. And one day the proprietors said, well, we're going to move the plant to somewhere else where we can pay the workers less. And as the local MP, Ed was very sympathetic to the workers, but it also got him thinking about the wider questions of how do we prevent this? Here you have workers and their families who have been attached to this company for, in some cases, decades, whose labor has produced all of the value that the company produces, and yet they are completely at the whims of management. So it was out of cases like that and discussions with Europeans as well, um, some of them from the Eastern Bloc who were engaged on these questions of how more participatory kind of economic model could work. This is where Ed really, I think, got some of his most radical ideas. He had a proposal, for example, in which every workplace with over 50 employees or more would automatically be a union local. The idea was basically, let's treat 
economic citizenship the same way that we treat political citizenship. So as he puts it, and I think he argues very persuasively in the book, he still to the end really bought this idea intellectually that if you don't have to fight to you know, have your right to vote in an election every four years, why should you have to fight uh, to have any say in your workplace at all? And the second major component was that Ed wanted to change Canadian labor law and the, the scope of goods, if you want, uh, and rights that could be bargained for at the bargaining table so that workers would no longer be just negotiating over wages and working conditions. They'd be essentially bargaining away the prerogatives of management to an extent that after a while, there would be many enterprises that would essentially just be worker owned and controlled. And he thought very practically again about how all of that would work. And the industrial democracy ideas lived on in in many of the things that he uh, championed, particularly the industrial strategy that he ran on in several federal elections in the 1970s and 80s. But I think it's, you know, among the most interesting parts of his thought. And it was fascinating, I think, for all of us to discuss that with him. In this, as in all things, Ed was a relentless force for good in our beloved Canada. He embodied this in the political victories that he helped to secure for Indigenous rights and environmental justice for gender equity and an undying passion for the blue collar. For Ed, it was always about fairness, honesty, and bringing Canadians together. Importantly, Mr. Broadbent also embodied this in the way he pursued his vision. His contemporaries said he would always make his case passionately, but never personally. And the colleagues that he led said he had endless patience to hear dissenting opinions. Ed wasn't just about achieving good things. He was about pursuing them with a good nature. This was his politics of joy. In our recent election in Manitoba, We tried to follow his example. It was a dark and bruising campaign. The way our team beat back the politics of division was not by sharpening more effective wedges than our opponents. We earned a mandate by believing in the goodness of the people of our province. After how exhaustingly divisive The last few years have been in Canada. People in our part of the prairies were hungry to declare a simple message. We are one province. We are one people with one common destiny. And in this, I hear echoes of Mr. Broadbent's legacy. At a time of angry populists around the globe, of separate social media ecosystems that are worlds apart, of identity politics that obscure the simple truth that we are all related. Ed stood for the opposite. Ed stood for compassion in public. He stood for thoughtful leadership. And perhaps most importantly, he stood for the vision that we are one country 
Nous sommes un pays. We are one country. Mr. Broadbent's smiling, joyful legacy is an example we ought to learn from today. That we can use good means to achieve good ends. That we don't have to appeal to our darkest impulses. That we can have faith in our fellow Canadians. I hope for the sake of our country that more of our leaders speak to us Canadians the way Mr. Broadbent did, by appealing to our better angels. Ed Broadbent, I hope we will see you again. Francis, one of the biggest accomplishments of Ed's career was what was called the patriation of the Constitution. It's essentially when Canada became sovereign and not just part of the Commonwealth, tied to Great Britain. But uh, during this period, Ed had a really central role. What's striking to me is that Canada's Constitution you know, is not an 18th century document that we have to fight to, to do anything good to, but something that came about in the 1980s and includes a pretty expansive charter of rights and freedoms that I guess would be akin to our Bill of Rights, but so much more. What I'd like you to talk about is that, first of all, what happened, what it's involved in, because you've done so much work on Indigenous rights in your project. Talk also about why what resulted is in fact very expansive. Well, it's true that Canada did not have a written constitution or the power to amend our constitutional document until 1982. Canada is still part of the Commonwealth, but there was this tie to Great Britain that involved going to an outfit called the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, and basically the House of Lords in Britain, if we ever wanted to amend what we had by way of a written constitution. If you read, it's called the British North America Act. It looks like a business deal among colonial elites, which is pretty much what it was. The Liberal Prime Minister, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, objected to this, as many, many Canadians did. And it became part of his mission to, we said, patriate the Canadian constitution. We really were patriating the amending power for the constitution. And to do that, involved writing some more because there was nothing like there we had a, a bill of rights that had passed in the legislature in 1959 i think it was but it wasn't the same weight as a constitutional document guaranteeing rights so the ndp the new democratic party had long had its policy plank that canada should patriot its constitution and, and have a charter of rights but of course had not been able to make any headway because it never formed the government. When Pierre Elliott Trudeau, the Liberal Prime Minister, was ready to try to achieve this, he had a lot of practical political purposes, including sorting out the relationship with the province of Quebec. There were many political goals, shall we say, embedded in that process of patriation. Ed immediately agreed that the NDP should support patriation, but he made his support conditional. And it was conditional first on a demand of provincial premiers in Western Canada, largely, and uh, including one NDP one, that provinces retain control of natural resources. That ended up in the new constitution. 
there were several really other important rights struggles going on at the time. The women's movement had organized and was pressing for gender equality to be included in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Trudeau and Broadbent agreed about that, and it, it was in. Indigenous people, had, as in your country too, had been organizing since the end of the Second World War to have their treaty rights respected, to have their sovereignty over their lands respected, and to, in general, have Canadians recognize their important role as landowners and as citizens of the country. They had made some small progress in this project, but they all saw, the leadership and the member, many of the membership of the Indigenous movement saw that the patriation process was a wonderful opportunity to have their rights recognized in the Constitution. There were many dimensions to the struggle, but one of the most effective ones was they commissioned a train that traveled across Canada. It was called the Constitution Express, and it picked up people from the western province of BC to Ottawa. And in the, on that train were all of the people who wanted Indigenous rights in our Constitution. Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau was opposed to this. His position was that there should be no citizens in Canada who have more or less rights than any other citizens. And he was against recognizing Indigenous sovereignty or Indigenous rights in the Constitution. Ed said that he would not support the constitutional package absent a clause recognizing Aboriginal rights. His threat was credible because there was one premier who was also a New Democrat. The federal government needed the support of all 10 provinces. And so Ed threatened him. He said, well, we won't support it. My caucus won't. I won't. And more importantly, the province of Saskatchewan won't support patriation. You won't get anything if you don't put this in. And Trudeau agreed. And so with the strength of the Indigenous movement at the time, some key court decisions that I won't talk about, but the readiness of Ed to use the leverage that he had in that particular moment of our political history meant that we got Section 35 in our Constitution, which affirms, which recognizes existing Aboriginal and treaty rights, along with some other provisions. What that meant is that Indigenous people could use the Supreme Court to argue for an interpretation of that language that went in the direction they wanted it to go. And this may be surprising, but our Supreme Court leaned progressive for all this period. And so in a series of about 26 Supreme Court decisions, the meaning of that phrase, existing Aboriginal and treaty rights, was extended and expanded. They didn't do it, make it up out of their head. They were listening to the arguments made by Indigenous lawyers, and it took a very, very incremental process. But we've come to quite a remarkable place where Indigenous jurisdiction over their original territories is recognized. There are some things to work out <laughs> still. Crown sovereignty isn't yet challenged. That was a massive gain for the Indigenous movement. And it wouldn't have happened without Ed's political courage and his ability to organize his party in support of that clause and others. This has got to be one of the biggest accomplishments, and it's just incredible that Ed had such a central role in it. One of the things that amazed me when I was reading the chapter in the book, Seeking Social Democracy, was that Canada's constitution does not include property rights. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there'll be no Citizens United, there'll be no sort of amendment or whatever that says that corporations are citizens, because that doesn't exist in Canada. And I thought... 
It's so significant. I also know from reading the chapter that Ed was very much opposed to having any reference to property rights in the Constitution. So maybe you can talk, Francis, and maybe others as well about why this is so important and what it means in terms of making the kinds of incremental changes, but also like, you know, guaranteeing housing and doing things like that, that in this country, there's this sacrosanct private property. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that. I actually don't think there was a strong constituency for private property rights and on, among any of the groups that were struggling. It may have something to do with our different constitutional history or I don't know, but certainly the NDP would never have supported entrenching property rights. One of the more controversial, difficult ones for me to come to terms with was we also don't explicitly have the right to unionize in our constitution. What there is, though, is freedom of association. And because this has been litigated, it's gone to the Supreme Court, that clause about the freedom to organize now protects the right to unionize. Is that overstatement, you labor guys, or no? Not an overstatement. No, no, it's <laughs> so, not. Yeah. So it that was, that's continues a- to reap incredible wins all over the place, especially when governments use right to work legislation or impose ceilings on bargaining mandates and so on. It's like no one was satisfied when Section 35 went in with a very small to the credit of continuing struggle and in the courts that nations were forced basically because, you know, the practices violate your rights and we'll figure it out later from the crown. You know, they sort of filled and what those rights are, um, including into, around land and title to the land. You know, that's been the same on workers' rights. I mean, it could have been different with different courts, of course. Uh, Maybe you can talk a little bit, Jonathan, as well about one of the key dilemmas that was faced by Canada in the 1980s was the free trade agreements. And, you know, Ronald Reagan came in and he was writing an economic constitution for North America. And, of course, you know, the NDP and with under Ed's leadership, of course, opposed that because he saw it as bringing the unbridled commodification of everything. And right at the heart of Ed's understanding of social democracy is the decommodification of so many of these areas. Just take it out of the market sphere and make it a part of political rights. But can you talk just a little bit about what that battle was like in that period? For Americans, it might have seemed like, oh, Canada's being just nationalist and anti-American, but (laughs) maybe you could describe it. I definitely want to hear from Francis, who, of course, would have seen the amazing debate during the the fights over free trade. I mean, from my perspective, and I imagine who shares this, it's like incredible to think how all of Ed's concerns have been borne out. Part of the nationalism was about control of our own destiny. And Ed was worried about that and the role of American capital and multinationals kind of setting up branch plants. And, you know, there was this whole theory of Canada's sort of underdeveloped uh, empire to ourselves. Chapter 11 and the ability, how things are adjudicated in NAFTA and the ability of corporations basically to stop, limit, destroy kind of any state intervention, any nurturing of a sector, um, never mind that concerns about the lack of labor protections, environmental protections. We would have had such a different 
time in the early 90s, because of course, I mean, neoliberalism came to Canada a bit later, but very harshly after he had left politics. And for your listeners, if you go to the New York Times and type Ed's name in, one of the headlines that comes up is, you know, leftist leader surging in Canada from 1987. And it was right after Reagan visited and Ed had requested a meeting with Reagan, which Reagan had turned down because it was protocol to meet the leader of the opposition, but not of a third party. And then a poll came out with Ed 10 points ahead of the prime minister. And maybe you should have met this guy. But I believe on that visit, too, part of Ed's office had heckled Reagan. And I think Ben Robinson might have even done some sort of protest or something. So, look, that was that rocked in the midst of a very strong and almost successful separatist movement with kind of crescendo and press shortly after that. But that dominated Canadian politics, the free trade debate. Yeah, the 1988 federal election campaign, which was Ed's most successful in terms of the the seats, the NDP had never won and its predecessor, the CCF, had never won, uh, I think it was 44 seats, highest popular vote as well. But it was also a tremendous disappointment for Ed personally and for the parliamentary left in Canada because months out from the election, they were on course to win. They were on course to realign the Canadian party system to a kind of a left-right split without these mushy, elite brokerage-obsessed middle that has kind of dominated our country's politics for the better part of a century. And the free trade issue really represented a, I don't want to say an insoluble dilemma, but perhaps an insoluble dilemma for Ed and for the NDP, strategically speaking, because in English Canada, there was a a huge reaction against free trade. And in Quebec, which was where Ed was making really important inroads, again, Quebec is, it's absolutely critical to forming a federal government. And the NDP had consistently failed to break through there and its predecessor, the CCF, uh, because the nationalist sentiment was so kind of dominant. And that was the dominant question. And Quebecers, for various reasons, just did not feel the same opposition to free trade. And so the Conservatives, led by Brian Mulroney, who were championing the deal, did really, really well in Quebec. The NDP were caught between a rock and a hard place. And it was very, very difficult to figure out how to treat the free trade issue. And the best election in, in Ed's career and, and the best result for the NDP uh, to date, I think, was nonetheless kind of a disappointment. You know, I remember when all of us were talking with him about that, I certainly felt very, very sad in those discussions because it really was the last chance in those few decades to kind of reverse the course that we were on. We got what Ronald Reagan, I think, rightly called a a new economic constitution for North America. And and that's what we live under today, a a market society rather than simply a market economy. I think that's a really good illustration to another of Ed's convictions that inequality is the result of policy decisions. It's not inevitable. And so, you know, this to me was really important because most people think that inequality is just, it's what capitalism brings about. But Ed insisted that you could make policy decisions that would go in a different way. Ed Broadbent was not a texter. (laughs) When, When he wanted to talk to me, he called me. Many of these calls were to check up on my family. He was a mentor, 
but he was a considerate friend who showed deep warmth. By and large, his calls, however, were to talk about what mattered immensely to him, political ideas. And I'll never forget my first cold call from Ed. I was in the food court of Toronto's Eaton Centre, and seeing his name on my screen, I quickly ducked into sport check. (laughs) And I was immediately put on speakerphone. Ed and his then partner, the great socialist theorist Ellen Mason's Wood, launched immediately into debate. Jonathan, we have some notes on the piece on The Guardian you forwarded. For the next 45 minutes, wedged between tennis rackets and hockey sticks, I was engulfed in discussion about the Greek debt crisis. (laughs) True to Ed, I remember his despair at the blunt force of austerity about the inequitable costs that would be borne by working people. And I'm going to miss those calls. We just heard about Ed's inspiring work at Rights and Democracy. Less well-known was his work as Vice President of the Socialist International. There, Ed was engaged in important diplomatic efforts in Central America, advancing human rights, often in concert with social movements, against an imposing current of repressive U.S. foreign policy. Ed wrote a piece in the Globe and Mail in 1986, and it's quite remarkable. This was at a time when many leaders of social democratic parties were retreating from their convictions. Not Ed. He wrote, and I quote, The world of a politician is a world of light and shadow, never merely pragmatic, it is always moral. When we talk about democracy, pluralism, religious freedom, tolerance, human rights and self-determination, we are not giving voice to mere abstractions relevant only to a few nations. We are talking about human values and ideals that we believe desirable for all people at all times in all parts of our world. Thank you. Jonathan, I know you wanted to talk about Ed's internationalism. At the outset, I said that he was vice president of the Socialist International, but also the the guiding principles of the Broadband Institute are not just national, but also international and theoretical. And so I think it's not like changing sharply directions, but maybe you could talk about how this figured into Ed's life and politics. Yeah, well, it's very clear talking to him just how important being involved in the Socialist International, and by the way, you know, at a very different time when that institution mattered, and I would say had some integrity, Ed was, because he thought so deeply and practically about what a democratic socialist program would be, of course, that necessitated an internationalism. And he's got this wonderful flourish talking about when he was studying he did a year in the UK, I think at LFE, and he heard, oh my God, the former president of Trinidad and Tobago, Eric Williams. Eric Williams, yeah. Yeah, a speech about harshness of British colonialism, something like they've taken orange and they 
squeeze and squeeze and squeeze. And when it's only the hot left, they throw it away. So I think the sensibilities were there, but it was clear that at the SI, not only was he exposed and working with statesmen like Billy Bront, Olaf Palme, socialists who were running very important in the German place, especially in Europe, and navigating what then was a very different third way between the Soviet bloc, what had called rip-and-run U.S.-style capitalism. But also the SI at that time was very involved in kind of the anti-apartheid struggle, was attuned what decolonization was actually looking like across Africa and South Asia and so on. And he was deputized to do very sensitive negotiations in Central America against the grain of this horrific, repressive U.S. foreign policy. And his conception of group rights as being an important social right, I think, helped him both in the Canadian context and also internationally. And he brought it clearly to how he was the leader. At our book launch, someone in the audience talked about the fight that the NDP had in Parliament to accept refugees after Pinochet's coup in refugees who got in the country. So while he was engaged in these debates, you'll read in the book a very interesting, he was tasked with offering to Castro in exchange for free and fair elections, massive support from the social democracies of Europe to, to sort of alleviate the pain of the U.S. embargo. I mean, that is, I mean, just to be entrusted with that kind of mission, I think, speaks to, he was a seasoned kind of diplomat, in a way. We could talk about the 90s when he founded an organization called Rights and Democracy, which was based in Montreal. It was federally funded, but entirely independent. He was the first president. And they worked on the side of truth and justice, working with insurrectionary forces and community organizations in Central America and in Africa. He built a team of really idealistic, he called them happy warriors, people who couldn't stop working on this mission. And they did an amazing variety of things. They had convened meetings of foreign ministers and officials in Central America trying to work towards peace resolutions. He worked with whatever government would be willing to support pacification and and progressive change. It was a wonderful initiative, which was killed later on by the Harper government in Canada, but a, a remarkable organization. So right from the beginning of his career to the end, he remained engaged in international work. And they were an early founder of Beth Salem, perhaps the most important Israeli human rights organization, and visited the occupied territories in the early 90s and wrote a searing critique of settlement expansion in our then-considered paper of national record, the Globe and Mail. And the funding of that Salem ended being one of the undoings. It was the insufficiently pro-Israel, you know, end of, of the organization's work that ended up seeing it destroyed by an ideological prime minister. And I thought that was always such a fascinating tidbit to me. Since they funded civil society, too. Like, they helped direct funds. Incredible. I wanted to wrap up with this. Ed was also a, an optimist. 
And even though, as you're saying, there was crushing defeats, you know, around so many areas. And if we look at where we are in the 21st century with wars we couldn't even imagine taking place with such barbarity. Throughout that, even when we would talk to Ed, he would always take a view that all of these things are reversible and that it takes political leadership. And for Ed, I think he said, if we can't defend what we have— and just rest on our laurels with what we've done, then we cease to lead. And I think he said, you know, some variation of that in 1968. That was sort of the guiding principles throughout his life about what it means to be a leader. And I think we should end talking a little bit about the Broadband Institute, because that was his sort of final act. It's still around, and it's very important. All three of you are involved with it. So maybe we could talk a little bit about what, is it a think tank? Is it a policy, you know, adjunct, or is it, what is it? It is a think tank. There is research. It's a training school. There's an, an important role is to provide training. It was to balance up things in Canada because we have right-wing think tanks that are massively well-funded. And part of the idea with the Broadband Institute was to even up the national discussion by putting other ideas into the public realm for consideration that are that were founded in social democratic principles. And it has principles. They're listed. They're Ed's principles. And it funds work that talks about putting those principles into practice. One thing before you go into it, I I was looking at the principles and it includes things like the green economy that leaves no one behind, workplace democracy, fully implementing the rights and titles of indigenous peoples. And I was thinking, yeah, it should also include public airwaves, public, public airwaves, (laughs) given how important the fourth estate is to uh, democracy. But let's hear from both Luke and Jonathan a little bit more about the Broadbent Institute. You know, I see so much as a, a moment in time, like when it was formed, we were in five or six years into a, a very right-wing federal government, and there had been a deliberate public effort by right-wing, I guess, the corporate sector on think tanks, and basically kind of a persuasion. We had this in the States, too you know, around neoliberalism or Cato Institute or whatever. There are many of those. The Fraser Institute was born out of resistance to a social democratic government in Western Canada and so on. And there needed to be some sort of way to sort of sift the discourse. And, you know, I think in the early days, too, this is, it was launched right after the next breakthrough for the NDP, which was under a leader called Zach Layton. In 2011, who Ed had ran for his wife, who still had gotten sick and stepped back to Parliament. But, you know, I think that ground in terms of disorientation. But I also think it was really a creature of a moment where there was, there was such an absence in Canada of sort of political idea formulation or any sort of left. What was there was more academic, I would say. And this had kind of bigger aspirations. And true to Ed, you know, I think it's become much more imbued with kind of his legacy. But, you know, it it was a broader tent progressive organization in its earlier years. Certainly when Luke and I worked there, we were very much on the left flank. And your your friend Ellen was like plotting with me all the time. 
you know, like we had the Friedrich Ebert system doing something and she would like send me the Rosa Luxemburg stuff and I'd like try and invite speakers from there. And I'm glad this came up actually because because Ellen, you should know, was this book, Genesis, has it has many places it starts, many versions, and Luke already alluded to that. But m- my role in it was that Ellen, when she was sick, sent me a very earnest email. And her emails with me were always jokey. A lot of Yiddish, a lot of, like, yeah, exclamazo. Exactly. And she was just, this was like, Jonathan, you have to infer that Ed incredible legacy and contributions to public life were captured. You must. And that started kind of a, a new kind of kissing around what would a book look like or whatever with then flex for many years until, until I sent an old email to add many years later. Yeah, I just wanted to tell that because of course you have that connection. So Ellen's fingerprints are there for sure. Thank you. Luke? Sure. Well, uh, before I worked at Jacobin, I worked at the Broadbent Institute, and I specifically worked for something called Press Progress, which was a, you know, as a media enterprise of the Broadbent Institute, a small newsroom, which I was one of the first few. Just further to what Jonathan was saying regarding right-wing think tanks, I mean, one of the things that we used to do, and which I took great pleasure in, I have to say, was going to war against the right-wing think tanks. And Canada, which have had tremendous influence, influence that I do think we succeeded in some very concrete ways in rolling back. It was typical for right-wing organizations like the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, the Fraser Institute, to release reports and then have every major news outlet in the country do a story that simply took their executive summaries and reprinted them with no analysis. And you would find when you actually looked into these reports, they're full of shoddy methodology, they're full of numerical sorcery involving substituting medians for averages and that sort of thing. And by reporting on those critically, you know, we did other things as well. We were able to get the Canadian media to start covering a lot of those reports very, very differently. You know, it was able to happen because we had this newsroom, which is still operating today under the aegis of the Broadbent Institute. Francis, any words you want to add to that? Well, the Institute has many faces and it serves a lot of important roles. One that Luke is describing also, press progress is, I understand, the, the most successful part of the Institute's activity. And uh, it's particularly popular among trade unionists and activists because it's a wonderful source of what's going on. It's a, it's reliable. It's not ideological. and the, I mean, the interest comes from the left, but the reporting is straight up. It's now had a baby called Shift Work, which is a union news. And they're free. Everyone can subscribe to that. If you want to know what's happening in the labor movement in Canada, I recommend Shift Work. If you want to know generally what's happening in Canadian politics, press progress is there. And they really fill an important void as our media like yours are concentrating and crumbling around us. There's still press progress. I want to thank all of you for joining us today on the show. This has been incredible. I want to tell the listeners to go out and get this book called Seeking Social Democracy, Seven Decades in the Fight for Equality. We are going to go out with some of Ed speaking himself, but thank all three of you for your contribution and really what you meant in Ed's life. 
I just wish he could have been cloned. But I hope that this book and the Institute and all of that work will produce many more Eds in the future. <laughs> it's what we need. So Francis Abel, Distinguished Professor at Carleton University, Jonathan Sass, Policy Analyst, Luke Savage, Writer and Essayist and, and Jacobin Columnist, co-authors of this book. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Susie. Thank you. I was born in Oshawa in 1936, home of the great UAW Local 222. First few times I was asked to get involved in politics, I politely declined, preferring to continue my work as a prof at York University. Going into politics just wasn't in the plan. But at some point in all our lives, we must ask the question, who is benefiting from the social and economic changes all around us? Our country is better because of Ed. He was a dynamic force, a tireless champion for justice, an adamant believer in a better tomorrow. It's difficult to sum up the size and scope of his contributions to Canada. But without a doubt, he loved this country with everything he had. Ed, que la Ed understood that democracy is for all of us. And in the House of Commons and elsewhere, he would never back down whatever the struggle. He would engage in debates of, with uh, ferocity. Ed Broadbent. He's someone who Canadians know his various titles. Member of Parliament. Leader of... Canada's NDP, President of Rights and Democracy, founder of the Broadbent Institute. But Canadians also know him for who he was as a person. The working class kid from Oshawa turned academic. The university professor turned politician. And the politician turned into one of our country's leaders. Ed Broadbent was a giant of the Canadian political scene. And so I viewed him as a major contributor to Canadian unity, to Canadian public policy. And he was an extremely pleasant, delightful guy to know. That's the nature of his contribution. I consider him a great parliamentarian and a major contributor to Canadian progress during the decade or decade and a half we were together. At the center of Ed's heart, he was fighting for us ordinary Canadians. He was fighting for the underdogs. He was always fighting for the little guy. And Ed knew that our systems didn't work for everyone. And that's why he fought for, in particular, people who are marginalized, especially women. It is time that this government came to grips in general with the problem of unemployment. For all the 1.6 million that are unemployed, but most specifically I say today, Mr. Speaker, that in addressing ourselves in Parliament at long last to the problems of unemployment, that we keep in mind, and clearly keep in mind, that the dreams of Canadian women have a full and equal place in the scheme of things to the dreams of Canadian men. Le Québec avait une place 
For uh, Ed, Quebec had a special place in his heart. He had understood the importance of Quebec. Where once they had 400 members, they now have almost 20,000. Ed Robbins' capacity for compassion was just never-ending, whether it was at an individual level or whether it was about our whole country. To be humane, societies must be democratic, and to be democratic, every person must be afforded the economic and social rights necessary for their individual flourishing. On their own, political and civil freedoms are insufficient in the realization of that goal. I believed in 1968, and I believe today, that political democracy is not enough. In the 21st century, the rebuilding of social democracy must be our task. Social democracy alone offers the foundation upon which the lives of people everywhere can be made dignified, just, and exciting. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.